Backstage at the Apollo, part two. Hello, welcome to a kind of Christmas New Year jamboree uh, that we recorded backstage at the Hammersmith Apollo when uh, we were doing the uh, Brian Robbins Compendium of Reason. I'm really sorry, Josie. I've been seeing other podcast partners mm. behind your back. So sad. Uh, the TV star, <laughs> Brian Coggs. Um, the, uh, and apparently does some science as well. It's all right, isn't it? Um, anyway, so this, these, these are uh, a series of uh, brief interviews where people talk about their favourite books, including Helen Chersky, Jim Al-Khalili, Chris Hadfield and Sophie Ellis-Bexter. Yes, this is part two of our backstage at the Apollo Book Shambles. So some of those people Robin just mentioned may have been on part one. Some of them may be now on part two. And if you're listening to part two first, that's fine. There's no narrative arc just to let you know that this was recorded backstage during sound checks and the gig and everything else. So there might be some background noise. Some of these interviews might be recorded in a nice quiet dressing room. Some of them might be recorded in an echoey hallway. Some of them may be outside. Who's to say so keep that in mind when you're listening and also just to note that uh since these were done pre-show and during the show while people were running around madly doing all sorts of things uh some of the interviews are done by robin some of them are done by myself and uh quite a few of them are done by one of the other producers on the cosmic shambles network melinda Um, Jim O'Cleary, who uh, I did... Is it Pointless Celebrities or Celebrity Pointless? I can't remember what the... Uh... It's Pointless Celebrities. Yeah, because people love that. It's one of the, the things yeah. they go, uh, I'll tell you what, uh, uh, they're, they're pretty right, aren't they? They are Pointless Celebrities. Yeah. yeah, 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 no, that is the joke of the title. I think that is partly... I yeah. think that's... I think they've that, made that's the joke. That's why they've I mean, done well it. done for noticing the joke and thinking you've made a separate <laughs> joke. Um, but yeah, we did do that, and that hopefully will be going out uh, around Christmas time, and you'll find out who ultimately is intellectually best Jim O'Clearly or me you will be able to it's find an interest, out yes interesting it. isn't it I can't, mean, can't give it away what no no I can't give it I just should say it's a pointless programme really. yeah 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 it shouldn't yeah, be it was, taken that seriously it's a very it's a good show isn't it because it does it, it properly taxes you in terms of not merely intelligence but ingenuity and how yeah. much empathy I think that I think that's probably sometimes a problem where, also luck you. also luck no I don't think it's luck I okay. think I mean unless we look at the whole thing but I would say in a probabilistic universe luck is certainly not the kind of thing I like to hear a physicist talking about well, well, in, in this universe, I, you know, you know, I may not have been that interested in. But anyway, but we'll see. We can't say. We can't say. No, no, we have we to keep not it. say what. Absolutely. What, what, what happened? But, but don't bother watching it. No, it's. Uh, I mean, watch a little bit. But certainly <laughs> the. Uh, so, uh, but I think I think the problem is whenever physicists are on uh, pointed celebrities is part of it involves empathy with other human beings, and you generally work on a subatomic level as opposed to anything molecular or beyond. That is true. If it's not quantum, I mean, uh, yeah. why, why would I care? Um, <laughs> this is, that was, was that your very... No, that wasn't your first book. Was it your first book? Was Black Holes... Wormholes and Time Machines. Yes. And, in fact, I, someone brought a copy to me today to ask me to sign it for his son. Uh, it came out nearly 20 years ago now. Yeah, and I've it's in paperback. And it, but it costs like 20-something quid for a paperback. I, I'm surprised anyone buys it anymore. But they should because it's brilliant. So is it still out then? It's still out, yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think the f- the first one because I've got that. I think the first one I got was um, Quantum: A Guide for the Perplexed. Yes, 
Yes. Uh, which is a great, which is, I had a lovely experience once of, of, of standing on a train as usual, an overfull train where you're stuck at the, uh, um, the, the uh, disabled access toilet. And I was trying to read, uh, you're enjoying reading your book about quantum. And this guy who looked very cool, young, you know, kind of person uh, walked past me and just looked. And, uh, and he looked again and he just went, I just really fascinating that whole idea of kind of superposition and the, I mean, wow, the, the experiments, it's just fascinating. And then he wanted just to talk about how he only recently found out about quantum behavior and yeah. the most, and there he was in his kind of, you know, a, a, a beanie hat, which almost suggested that there may be an element of violence in our conversation, but there was yeah. none whatsoever. But that, that's what my writing does. It brings people together. No, he hadn't read your book. Oh, okay. Um, uh, (laughs) uh, No, that's a great, but I think that's a very good starting point. I think it it is, because it's such a hard subject for, when someone like Mm. you, because once you've reached a point of at least having some understanding of how instinctively preposterous it is, I think then it's quite hard to write about it for an audience that do just go, but, but. Yeah, you have to keep saying, I know this is going to sound silly. I know, but we really have checked it. We really have thought about it. And, you know, it's not that we haven't given it much attention and you're going to say, yeah, but have you considered this? Yes, we have considered it. And it really is strange. And it's given us a headache. So it's... I mean, I've now gone a step further than that book because I've, I've now got the Ladybird book of quantum mechanics out, which is, you know, slightly more basic, but, well, slightly more concise and condensed. So maybe it's not as, as, as satisfying... If you really but it's want done to remarkably well, hasn't it? I mean, it's a very popular book. The, it, your, your book and, uh, and Steve, uh, Steve Jones, Jones on, on evolution. Yeah, and, and indeed, um, His Royal Highness, the Prince of Wales, a book oh, on climate change. you trying to get an OBE like Brian Cox has got. I've got one. I got, one, be- I got one before. <laughs> I got one before Brian, I'll oh, have you know. I'll, I'll tell you what, as a Republican, <laughs> you both disgust me. <laughs> it's one thing I've got on him. I got my OBE before him. <laughs> Don't take it away from me. So what, what was, in, in terms of, because it is, those Ladybird books are the, the, the length, the same kind of illustrative style mm. of the great traditional Ladybird books. What, when you're putting together the, the story of a, our understanding of quantum behavior, how do you decide what, I mean, it must have been very difficult for you to go, there's no room for that part of the story. This is the... Yeah. I think it, I mean, it was actually easy to say right i've got 24 pages it says 48 pages 24 texts and 24 pictures so i've got 24 pages that's 24 topics because each page i want it to be sort of standalone so i'm going to do niels bohr and the copenhagen institute i'm going to do rutherford i'm going to do um wave particle duality i'm going to do heisenberg's uncertainty principle and i just list all those topics and then i think okay well i've got three more than i've i've got room for what's going to get jettisoned um, and, and then once I've got the topics, it's actually not that difficult to write the 250 words to, to explain that topic. The real challenge was working with the artist to try and find a suitable image that goes with some of these quantum ideas, which is not straightforward. What's your favourite in terms of uh, surprise? I think that's the beautiful thing is when an artist goes away and then they return and it's something that wasn't in your mind. It's, mm. a, it's a piece of imagination that was... Is, is there one particular you think, yes? There, there's, there's, there's one that I'm most proud of, which I'll tell you about in a moment, but the one that I was most surprised and delighted by was the depiction of a quantum computer, 
which was basically a sort of an old style 1950s fridge, you know, so with the, the curved edges, door open, and from it are hanging magnets. And, and various other paraphernalia. So, you know, the idea that you, to, to build a quantum computer, you have to build it in, in near absolute zero, and it involves various magnetic fields and so on. And it was such a pretty picture. A fridge open with lots of magnets and balls hanging from it, and there's your quantum computer. But the, the funniest one was um, the very last page. I had to talk about quantum gravity. So that's the theory that unifies quantum mechanics with general relativity. It's the holy grail of physics. We're not quite sure. What, where, whether we're on the right lines or not. And they said, well, what are we going to do? I said, well, the only person who's made any progress on this is Stephen Hawking. Uh, he's got this, what we call Hawking radiation, particles and, and antiparticles forming outside a black hole. So I said, so how about having, and I'm just saying it just as a, as a laugh, how about Stephen Hawking in a spacesuit on his wheelchair falling into a black hole? And that's what they did. And it's brilliant. And he's got a little rocket sticking out the back of the wheelchair and he's just tumbling in the event horizon. Lovely little picture, depicts exactly what I wanted. So it's, it, it worked very well. What have you been enjoying in terms of other people's work? What have you enjoyed this year? It doesn't have to necessarily be scientific, but it is, you know, if it is, the, the Christmas books you think that people should be getting. Well, um, at the moment, I'm reading through a huge science fiction novel um, by Nick oh, Harkaway, Nomon, it's called. It's right. just come out. So it's sort of a near future mishmash with sort of a bit of fantasy but it's nearly a thousand pages um and i don't know i had a, a two-week holiday last month and i thought i'd rather than take lots of books i'll take one book with me and it was that one i'm halfway through it i am enjoying it but now that i'm back from holiday and only reading it when i'm in bed and falling asleep after a page and a half and having to reread those pages again i'm not making much progress uh but i've also been reading carlo rovelli yeah. So he's the Italian um, cosmologist, quantum gravity. So he's got, a, uh, he had the, the, the real big seller was the, the Seven Lessons in Physics, which beautifully written, sort of just a, a collection of essays. It's, it's a bizarre thing. That, I mean, because it is, literally, that's what it is. It's seven short pieces that he wrote yeah. before it was a newspaper, wasn't it? Yeah. yeah. And it's strange, isn't it? Those things that capture people's imagination and just that was the book. And I, I, everyone yeah. that I've given it to, and I've given it to quite a few people, they enjoy it a great, and it immediately leads to them wanting to read. I mean, that's the great mm. thing about it, is it? It's not that it's the book in itself; it's also the fact that it is a book that drives sparks you to interest. Other books. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it originally came out in Italian. I don't know whether he wrote the English version or whether he worked with a translator. I mean, he's, his English is perfect. He's you know, an international scientist, but there's nothing in that book that hasn't been written a hundred times by other popular science writers. But he's just got a way of poetically getting across these simple ideas that in the way that, you know, Richard Feynman used to be able to do, you know, that he just brings it alive. There's nothing magical about it. It doesn't have the, the beautiful prose of a Richard Dawkins, mm. where you're reading it, oh, yeah, I wish I had, could, could write like that, but, uh, but maybe not quite have that personality. <laughs> but, but um, no, Carlo Rovelli, I mean, I've not, met, I've not met him. I've had several occasions where near miss where I could have met, uh, met him. I invited him onto the Life Scientific, mm. And then we got trumped by Desert Island Discs. Oh, yeah, of course yeah, he did that, yeah. yeah. I, I had this argument with his agent. I said, if he's over here to sell copies of his book, trust me, the listeners to the Life Scientific are more likely to buy a copy of his book than listeners to Desert Island Discs. But no, the Desert Island Discs was, was deemed to be the, the bigger prize. So I may have him on sometime in the future. So you, but you're reading his, his, his most I'm reading his book. most recent one on quantum gravity. Yeah. Well, I'm sort of 
skipping the first half because a lot of it is the background history of science. I want to get to the the last bit, which is his take on quantum gravity, because I think he there are there are the different sort of religions on how you unify quantum mechanics with relativity. Do you start the quantum mechanics and head to relativity? Do you start relativity and head to quantum mechanics, or do you ditch them both and start afresh? And most people subscribe to the string theory version, which is you you, you know particles emerge, particles of of gravity, the graviton, emerges out of quantum mechanics. Loop quantum gravity is the other version. I think he's a a fan of that. So I'd like to see how how he explains it. I haven't got there yet. How possible do you think it is for for lay people who this is not their world and they are reading about Mm. many other things apart from things, uh, you know, loop gravity, Mm. is it... Is it worth approaching it, or do you have to really spend quite a while building up some background knowledge, um, reading like you know your first book on mm, quantum, for instance, and, and, and building up from there? Well, it depends what level you want to appreciate it. I mean, it's like art or music. You know, I can go to the opera and not that I do very often, but and generally you know, like some of the melodies, but I'm not really following what's going on. Um, or listen to classical music, or go go to to a modern art gallery and and get some hint of what what they're trying to get across, because I'm not an expert, but I can still appreciate it. And I think people, good science, popular science writing, they can appreciate some glimpse of what uh, the the author's trying to get across without being experts in in the subject. And what was your? If there's one book this year that you would recommend beyond your own works, obviously. Uh, in fact, what is it? Should mm. we quickly say what your, your new book? Well, is? my new book is called "What's Next." So it's how whether scientists can predict the future. It's, it's a book that I've edited, and it has a lot of contributors talking about the future of genetics, quantum computing, AI, robotics, the transport, energy, and so on. So it's a, it's, it's looking to sort of the next decade or two and see what we have in store. What do you think is the most, in your lifetime, the most surprising uh, level of uh, understanding or creativity within scientific knowledge? Because I mean, there's that thing, I remember Arthur C. Clarke describes, you know, predicting the future, that either it's something that is, is already we know we're going to get there eventually and therefore it's quite kind of pedestrian, or it's something that you predict which is, is, seems so preposterous that you almost get declared a lunatic. Yeah, it's... it's, it's... It's difficult that, you know, some of the, the big technological advances have changed the world, you know, electromagnetism, electric motor and things like that. You know, Michael Faraday, when he was messing around with coils and, and magnets, he wasn't interested in applications. Um, I don't think anyone at the time ever imagined that there's this connection between electricity, magnetism and motion mm. that allows us to generate electricity at will and, and power the world. So that was a surprise and a surprise that given the time, a change that happened very, very quickly within the space of a decade. People were, you know, sending telegraphs and, and lighting up lighthouses and building dynamos and so on. Um, we talk about the World Wide Web and the Internet. I struggle to find science fiction writers who predicted that. I mean, there's a few. Mm-hmm. Who was the Polish... Um, not the guy who wrote... Uh, a short surname. Um, not Kapek. No, 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 not, no. He's not Polish. The uh, not the guy. No, we is uh, that was a Russian writer. Yeah. Who, uh, oh, it's, it's a well, single syllable surname, I think. Um, that's the man. Oh, Stanislaw Lem. Yeah. He wrote Solaris. That's yes. Yeah. So exactly, exactly. So he, Lem did predict networked computers talking to each other, but I don't think there have been any other science fiction writers who predict that, given how the web and the internet have transformed our planet 
in 25 years. It's amazing, and that we just take it utterly for granted now. It's amazing that no one saw that coming. Um, so it, it was a surprise. And you, you then try and imagine what could be the next surprise that would transform our lives to the ex- equivalent extent as, as the internet and the World Wide Web. I guess it's going to be AI and machine learning and, and robotics. But it will be a change that will take place over the next 5, 10 years, not 25 years. Were you expecting, you know, things like detection of gravitational waves? Obviously, won the Nobel Prize this year. We, we, was that to be expected? That I think it was. Be? Yeah, I think everyone assumed Einstein had predicted this, or it was predicted by his theory nearly a century ago, and experiments were getting ever more elaborate and sensitive. So, so I think the consensus was everything else about relativity is right. Uh, so this is likely to be true. We just need to build the, the equipment, the instruments that are sensitive enough. Sooner or later, we'll hit it. So it probably wasn't that much of a surprise. What will you be reading this Christmas? I presume you're going to be Nick Harkway's uh, novelist. I'll try and finish Nick Harkway's novel. I will finish Carlo Rovelli's book. I, I, if I have spare time, I'm actually going to be writing rather than reading because I don't know if you know, I'm, I'm almost finished writing my first novel. Right. So, which, is all, which is science fiction. Uh, and I've now had the editor's comments on the second draft. So I've been through the, the, the horrible first draft of show, don't tell, mind your point of view, this bit of plot is a bit weak, and why is this protagonist doing this? That sounds preposterous. Why would they do that? And so I've been through and rewritten stuff, and now it's basically getting rid of all the, the, the flab and sort of tightening it up, cutting out all the adverbs. <laughs> who, who was your in terms of this novel mm. uh, when you look back and you think of yourself as a child as a, as a, as a young person who did you aspire to be oh, oh easy writer? Stephen King right. I, I just read loads of Stephen King as, 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 a, as a boy as a teenager you know not anymore but actually in preparing to write this novel I read his book on writing oh it's great isn't which it which is yeah. fantastic and so much good advice on, on how to go about it. So I've almost, my style is probably a bit like that in that what I want it to be is a page turner. And, and I can see bits of it where I think, yeah, well, that's the way Stephen King would have explained that scene. Uh, I don't know whether that's a good thing or not. It's no bad thing to aspire to be as successful well, as Stephen King. Everyone starts off, don't they? The, yeah. You can't entirely lose your influences. No, absolutely. There's, there's, yeah, that's are there right. any you, true originals? True, yeah. How many, how many themes are there in fiction anyway? Yeah, yeah. Um, so anyway, your book about an astronaut trapped on Mars and how he survives by growing potatoes will... Oh, exactly. no. Has no one no. told you, Jim? Oh, oh, that's a pity. Oh, right. Back to the drawing board. Thanks, Jim. <laughs> this is Joe Brand. Well, my favourite book I've encountered this year is a book called um, The Glorious Heresies, and it's by... Mm, there's some nice music going on in the background. <laughs> no idea who that is. It might be the Beatles, but who knows? Um... Oh, they've stopped. Good. Um, yeah, it's a book called um, The Glorious Heresies. I think it's by um, Lisa McInerney. I might have got her first name wrong. Um, it's set in Dublin, and it's a kind of... Hmm, well, it's a, it's a sort of underworld thriller, really. But it's written in a quite an odd style. And I don't sound pretentious here, but the nearest thing I can think of to it is James Joyce. Because the it kind of it's it's sort of flow of consciousness, and you're thinking, oh God, how could you possibly read that? And I ask myself that as well. But it's beautifully written, it's very funny, it's extremely evocative, 
and it's got so many threads going on. It's a bit like War and Peace, but as long as you know who everyone is, it's brilliant. So that's the best book I think I've come in, in uh, contact with this year. Okay, now with one of our international guests this year, Dr. Carl, apart from your 42nd book that come out this year? 43rd. 43rd book. What was, what's the 43rd one? Is that the Doctor? That, no, it's, it's rather modestly called Carl, the Universe and Everything. I'm sorry. <laughs> so apart from that one, what's, yep. the, what's the best book you've read this year? Um, the Better Angels of Our Nature by Stephen Pinker mm-hmm. because it gives us a message of hope that in fact we are living in the most peaceful time ever in the history of uh, humanity. But then on the other hand, there's the other book called The Great Leveller by Scheidler which basically says the longer the period of peace, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Mm-hmm. And the only way it's reset is by the four horsemen of the apocalypse which are war, disease, uh, revolution and collapse of the state. And my message of hope is that in the same way we're living the most peaceful time ever in the history of the human race I'd also like to believe that there is a fifth method whereby we can have peace and we don't have to have this inequality between the wealthy and the poor There's and this book has got two to the tenth pages that's a mathematical <laughs> joke okay 1024 pages so it'll take you a while to get through it but it's really worth it because you're left elevated I'm hopeful of many things like for example that we can fix global warming if we really tried, if we went onto a war footing such as the United States did on the 7th of December 1941 after Pearl Harbor, mm. we could fix um, global warming, not only stop putting carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but start reversing it within 20 years. It's and yet... And, well, this uh, we, we, all, we dodged a bullet with uh, ozone. Mm. We could be in a situation where oxygen levels are beginning to go down now. And the only reason we're not is because the governments of the world said to the two or three dozen companies that made CFC, stop it. And they said, it's impossible. There's no other chemical that will do the job. And they said, screw it, just fix it. And they did. Yeah. Right. Where there's and, will. The, and, and in the same way, the Americans uh, uh, then started pumping out these huge B-17 bombers, something the size of an Olympic swimming pool, if you add up the area, and it could fly 3,000 uh, kilometres nonstop and come back and could do 450 kilometres an hour and carry tonnes and tonnes of stuff. They were pumping them out from each factory, not at one a month, one an hour. All we need is a, a hundred. We need 25 million machines that is put it being made by a factory in Switzerland to pump out a year's worth of carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And yet, we make a hundred million cars a year with no trouble. All we need is the political will. So what I'm saying is, Trent, you've got to run for politics because I tried in Australia and lost. <laughs> but I'll, I'll get onto that. Yeah, but the thing is that if you don't, you see, in some parts of the world, power grows out of the barrel of a gun. Yes. But in our societies, we're lucky that it grows out of politics. Mm. Get into politics, and then you won't be yelling at the TV. You'll be on the TV making things better for your children and their children. Okay, so I'm going to go and run for Parliament, and Carl's yes. now going to go and do an AV check. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Sorry, it's a bit heavy, man. <laughs> Cheers. It's Charlotte Church. Uh, yeah, so my favourite book of 2017 uh, is The Book of Dust, and that is because... Uh, I think that Philip Pullman's trilogy, The Northern Lights, is one of my, my one of my favourite trilogies of books. I think the the idea of killing God in a, in a children's book is immense and powerful, and it's done with such wisdom and beauty and care as to not um, 
step on anybody's religion. Um, and the Book of Dust is just, it's an expansion on the story. So I'm absolutely hooked in hook, line and sinker. <laughs> Christmas present? Uh, the book I'd give as a Christmas present um, would be a book called The Artist's Way by Julia Cameron, I think she's called. Uh, it was uh, given to me um, or recommended to me by a couple of my friends who, and, and, I, and, I'm, and I'm reasonably cynical about self-help books, etc. But this book, for anybody who is at all creatively minded or interested in trying to broaden their creative horizons, which I think is part of what the whole life experience is, um, should give it a go. It's such a, um, it's such a rewarding, um, really kind book. Really, it really helps you to give you tools of, of how to create things. Uh, right. Uh, actually, I want to ask you this: What, if you, what do you? Uh, I never see you reading, Professor Brian Cox. What do you read? I am currently... Let's have a look what is on my Kindle, shall we? Mm. Shall we see what was the last thing that I read? And I don't know the answer to this, so this is high risk. Because <laughs> I can't remember. And I can see it, so you can't lie. Oh! It's The Bittersweet Science, which is oh. 15 stories about boxing. And, yeah, and it's one of the, your favourites, And before it? that, it was uh, Richard Feynman and Stephen Weinberg, Elementary Particles and the Laws of Physics. And those are which genuinely is rather your two favourite things, aren't they? The colliding yeah. of particles Physics and the colliding and of fists and faces. Then I'll carry on. It goes, uh, The Rings of Saturn, you know, that famous book by um, Seabold, he's called, isn't he? And then, um, and then what else is it? Uh, Norman Mailer, A Fire on the Moon. Oh, let's have a look. Can I have a look at yours? Let's yeah, see. You go. We've got. Uh, oh, I tell you what, you've got uh, Forces of Nature by uh, uh, Brian Cox there. Uh, <laughs> uh, oh, and you've also got. This is good actually. I like this. this is exactly the percentage of ego that I think is required no, no. to be an author. Uh, let me tell you the reason why the Quantum Universe by Jeff Porcher and Brian Cox is there is because uh, two days ago I was uh, one day ago actually I was lecturing yesterday. <laughs> is it Friday? So Thursday I was lecturing quantum mechanics in Manchester to the undergraduates, and I wanted a quote out of that book. So that's why it's there. That is what I find. When we were on tour, you often went, hang on a minute, there's something I wrote, but I can't remember what it was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You actually had to buy your book at one point, didn't you? It's probably that one. Yeah, yeah that to buy the, it on Kindle. So, yeah, on, 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 the, on the cover, you've got Forces of Nature by Brian Cox. Uh, there we go, the, uh, the Quantum Universe by Brian Cox and How to Build the Universe by Brian Cox and Robin Ince. Well, that, that's why we're here, isn't it? Yeah. That, the, uh, I wish I'd sometimes want to buy my own books. I wanted to quote them, but I generally want to forget them. Um, <laughs> yes. Also, you've been really about conservatism oh Roger Scruton wrote a book on um, conservative philosophy and I wanted to try and understand it I want to try and understand if there is um, any kind of intellectual basis for the way that the current government are behaving and so I read this book it turns out that there's very little connection between uh, classical conservative philosophy and the way the current government operates I would what say. have you found out so far well, I found out that it's interesting in the sense that um, the, it's the idea that it's where does where does authority come from in a, in a society? So does it come downwards from a, a monarch? Or Should we go like over that? here? Or does it go does it come upwards right. from, from the people? And, and if so, how? And how does it evolve? And how does that, the acceptance of a structure in a society work? And I was reminded of the. Um, the Wreath Lectures little program that I did for the BBC on Robert Oppenheimer, who pointed out... Which has been, can I just say, that has been an enormous influence on you, hasn't it, it in the last few months, reading Robert Oppenheimer, listening to those lectures. They're brilliant. And he says that 
uh, the basic idea is that there are there are certain ways that physics makes you think that can be translated into understanding how societies operate. Actually, I'm just going to I'm just going to break into this interview because I'm going to go over and say hello to Chris. Hello, Chris. How are you? It's a uh, yeah. I can't, I, can't, I can't not say hello to yeah, the commander Chris of the International Hansel's Space Station. But there we are. The, uh, what we're doing a book podcast, so we might as well find out. Uh, what's your latest book? Uh, my latest book is a children's book called The Darkest Dark. It's about uh, not being afraid. How to overcome your fear when you're a little one. And I use the story of uh, being an astronaut and being in the darkest dark there is outside on a spacewalk to, um, to compare uh, the darkness at home and, and the darkness of the rest of the universe. But the dark is where you see the stars, and the oh. dark is where your dreams occur, and, and that's, the, that's the story of the book. Why couldn't you have written that when I was young? It's too late now. <laughs> yeah. I'll never not be afraid of you the can dark. Still, you can still read it. He's yeah. constantly frightened. He's frightened yeah, of himself, primarily. And where, what well, is, it's due to my what rapid aging will... compared to you. Well, it's not fair. <laughs> it's not fair to be the traveller. So you were just talking about Robert Oppenheimer. Oh, yes. So he, he, his claim <laughs> was that there's, there's certain ways that nature forces you to think that can be used in in understanding how to um, order a society. And one the example he gives is a, is a particle. Uh, how does a particle behave? Well, a particle sometimes behaves like a little point-like object, like a billiard ball, and sometimes more like a wave. And uh, really, it's neither. But you have to hold both ideas in your head to get a complete description of the particle. And his analogy is that when you talk about conservative philosophy or Marxist philosophy or whatever, you have to hold all these different ways of thinking in your mind in order to get a complete picture of how a society does and should operate. So you shouldn't be axiomatic. You shouldn't say uh, freedom is the base, the basis on which we build our society, individual freedom. Or you shouldn't say the collective is the, ba- is the basis on which we should build our society. You should understand that they are complementary pictures of the way that you should run a society, and that's what Oppenheimer claimed, in the same way that being a particle in a way, but complementary descriptions in the language that he used of uh, nature. Do you find that, now talking about that, 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 that now that seems to be a, a pragmatic use of, of the idea of the behaviour both as a particle and as a wave, but quite often the, the, there's a, a small leap, isn't there, from uh, proper quantum physics and an allegory that works, metaphor that works, and then crazy uh, bits which are where the charlatan yeah, I'm leaving that, go. I'm leaving that for Jim Akalili tonight. He's going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely there. He's not here to defend himself. He is somewhere. He's wandered off. I think he's in the bar. But do you find, I mean, people must, you, you must sometimes, it very rarely happened when we were on tour, but every now and again people must ask you questions where it takes ideas of quantum behaviour into a kind of pseudo-scientific way. And what do you think is the, what's the best way of combating that bit where you go, well, this seems to be based on a kernel of, of, of understanding of physics. How do I know that I can trust this or I can't trust this? Well, I mean, you have to understand about quantum mechanics that it is just a theory of how particles interact and move around, and that's it. So it's not a theory of, you know, um, why crystals are, are nice in Los Angeles or something, whatever the hell it is. It's a theory of how particles move around and interact, and that's it. So it's really basic, simple stuff. It's just that nature behaves in a way that is not, um, it's, it's not the way that we might expect it to behave based on our experience of the world, which is really to say that uh, Planck's constant is very small. So that's the, I'm yeah, sure that, that makes it clear. That, that, that <laughs> idea where so, so those people who go, well, if you are feeling poorly, one of the ways you can feel better is to make a quantum leap into being better. Now, that is working on a scale which I presume the physics will no longer... That uh, is dribble. 
But it's, it's a trouble, isn't it? Because it's such a lovely, in some ways, it's such a counterinsexual idea that people start to go, well, th- th- it's, it's counterinsexual at that level, anyone. so maybe it'll be counterinsexual. At- Very simple. The, the simplest thing you teach undergraduates, the first year, is to solve the Schrodinger equation in a, in a one dimensional infinite well. If you can't do that, you shouldn't even mention the word quantum on television. So you shouldn't decide that you're going to build a business called quantum healing unless you can at least find out what the ground state wave function of a particle in an infinite square well is using the Schrodinger equation. An 18-year-old can do that in their first year, the first term of a physics degree. So I think there should be a basic entry-level requirement before you're allowed to start saying quantum. So basically when you are interviewing someone... Unless you're James Bond. I mean, right. Oh, so you, we, so well, so you the solace. What does solace. that mean? Because I know it's I know it's one of the great questions. What what is solace when it's placed in a quantum state? Is it of, in a superposition uh, of solace? I suppose quantum kind of is used colloquially. colloquially how to say it? Colloquially to mean a, a, a sort of a, an, a, an, a, an atom of, doesn't it, or, or a moat of, like a quantum of dust, a moat of dust. A motor dust suspended in the sunbeam. Thank you. Astronaut Commander Chris Hadfield. I think the book that affected me the most this year, and the one that maybe is a measure of that, that I've recommended to so many people, is by Adam Rutherford, uh, which is A Brief History of Everyone Who Ever Lived. I learned so much from that book. And a book that I I love to give to people is a real blast from the past. It's by an author named Richard Bach. It's called Jonathan Livingston Seagull. And it's about the purity of thought and the purity of flying and, and of individual determination in, in the face of what seem to be impossible odds. It's a book you can read over and over again and learn something every time. It's a little book, but, uh, but it's a book that I treasure. And another astronaut now, it's Terry Virts. Yes, my name is Terry Virts. I'm a former NASA astronaut. And one very interesting book I've read this year is called Thinking Fast and Slow by a Nobel Prize winner, uh, psychologist Richard Kahneman. And it's about how part of your brain makes very fast snap decisions, and they're not always accurate, but they prevent you from being eaten by lions. And the other part takes its time. It's more accurate, but it takes its time. But the book that I would give for Christmas is one that I just wrote. It's called View from Above, and it's uh, stories and photographs from my time on board the International Space Station. And it kind of takes a space mission and puts it in book format. And finally, it's Dara O'Brien. Oh, God. Um, My favorite book moment this year was reading The Handmaid's Tale and then leaving it in the drawer of a hotel in Melbourne next to the Bible because I felt that was suitable. Um, But, uh, yeah, yeah. And and John le Carre's latest one, which I read purely because I read it in two days, which is unthinkable for a parent because I was in a weekend away. Uh, And I read a book quickly. So the last le Carre. Excellent. And uh, what would you buy somebody for a Christmas present, Uh, book-wise? The book I'm reading right now is Christopher Butter's uh, Butter's The Earth Gazers, which is basically a history of, of, uh, of rocket travel. Um, it goes from Lindbergh actually and sketches the various personalities of it and um, and then properly illuminates the, the race, the proper sense of race there was between America and Russia and all just to get images and why and why it was so, NASA was so resistant to even put, giving cameras to astronauts uh, which seems like an obvious thing to do now the, to be honest, I partially recommend that but I'd really recommend Beyond the Sky by Dara Brain if you've got an 8-12 year old in your life who likes space that's a cracker of a book 
Thank you very much for listening. And that was the final episode of Book Shambles for a couple of weeks, at least as we start recording for Series 7 of the series, which will be out towards the end of the month. And at that time, we'll also be launching some new perks for Patreon supporters. There'll be uh, signed books and book bags and badges and shirts and all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, So thank you very much for your continued support of the show on Patreon. We certainly wouldn't have been able to get to Series 7 without your support. And we can't make the show at all without your support. So that is greatly appreciated by all of us. Uh, if you don't pledge to the show and you have a spare spare dollar or two a month, you can go to patreon.com slash bookshambles and get in on that uh, where you get all the new perks that will be coming up uh, or they'll be, all be available to you as well as extended episodes, bonus episodes and lots more. Or you can support us by giving us a five-star rating on iTunes or Apple Podcasts. That really helps. Or come to one of our live events that we've got coming up in 2018. We're doing four episodes of Book Shambles live in the Elgar Room at the Royal Albert Hall in June. And we're also doing a huge show, Space Shambles, in the main hall, uh, hosted by Robin and Chris Hadfield. So you can find out all about that on the CosmicShambles.com website or the Royal Albert Hall website. And just before we end, at the end of the year, or technically this is New Year's Day, but anyway, here are my book recommendations. What I read in the last year that I would recommend are two books that ended up being on the Booker Prize list, actually, on the short list, so that shows they must be pretty good, is uh, Lincoln in the Bardo by George Saunders, which uh, uh, Nick Offerman actually recommended to us when he was on the show. And The Underground Railroad by Colson Whitehead, which I think came out last year, but that was that was fantastic. Uh, someone who was a guest on our show recently, actually, Jimmy Barnes, his two-volume autobiography, Working Class Boy and Working Class Man, is an incredible, it's a, it's a kind of a harrowing read, actually. It's certainly not the normal uh, music autobiography you'd expect. They are absolutely brilliant. Uh, Holly McNish's book of poetry, Plum, I thought was fantastic. And the best science book I read this year, I think, was probably uh, Black Hole Blues by Yana Levin, about uh, black holes, funnily enough, and the hunt for gravitational waves and all that stuff. That's a really great read. So they they are my end-of-year recommendations. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you very soon with Series 7. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network. Josie Robbins' Book Shambles was produced by Trent Burton of Trunkman Productions. 